0: Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about trials, troubles, tribulations, and triumphs in just everyday life. Today, I have with me uh, David Landau, but it's Dave, right? Yeah, Dave okay. Landau.
1: For the st- there was already a David Landau, gotcha. so for the SAG card, I had to go Dave Landau. Dave.
0: Well, it sounds more personable there,
1: right? It does. I think it's more welcoming, mm-hmm. a little more. Laid back, right? So uh, you are the number one top
0: comedian here in New York City, right? That's correct. Yes. If uh, you read the bio uh, I sent you, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'll expect that twenty dollars when you leave yes. for for this little plug here. So <laughs> I've left it on the dresser. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're we're happy to, and excited to have you with us here today on Doc Talks and uh, uh, just kind of covering some some things that that go through lives of successful people. Uh, We all have troubles. We all have trials. And and I think that sometimes uh, people who haven't gotten to certain goals in life, let these issues stop them. And it gets them to a point of where, you know, I'm not worth it. I can't make it. And so I think it's important for us to uh, look at people who are successful and talk about what it took to get them there. That way that we're not giving up on our hopes and dreams.
1: No, I like that. And I don't know. I could probably be even farther. But it's just uh, <laughs> I do agree with you that there is just a lot that you get in your own way quite a bit. Right. As you probably know.
0: Well, so I'm from Arkansas. So when you pull up the YouTube, you know, and and you – can find somebody's name on there, and there's more than one video, then they're famous. So, yes, <laughs> so that's the way it works. Uh, if you can get high enough on a telephone pole to get internet, you know, so yeah, that's a big uh, deal. There it, it is, it's huge. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Dave, tell me a little bit about growing up, where you grew up, family wise, you know, that kind of thing, mom and dad, siblings.
1: Uh, well, I have a twin brother okay. for siblings. Um, we're not identical, we are fraternal, he's uh taller and has red hair so I win <laughs> even though I'm five six to, but my mom was a nurse and my dad was he did a lot of different things coach high school basketball uh, was in insurance ran Babe Ruth Little League in Detroit and uh, Gross Point Woods that kind of combined the two cities so I grew up in a kind of very classic mid-American family but I grew up in uh, Gross Point Woods Michigan. I was born in Detroit. And I grew up off of 8 Mile, and we were kind of right on the border of one of the roughest neighborhoods in the world at the time, and or at least in the country, and kind of middle-class America. Okay. So uh, as I grew up, I, I, I'd say it was fairly normal. I was definitely very shy as a kid and had certain anxieties. And uh, my mom was bipolar, and she would kind of have two temperaments, which was completely kind and loving, or completely kind of insane, depending on which mood she was in. And she never, you know, it, it progressed over time. Right. Other than that, though, I mean, I know that sounds weird. It was a relatively normal family, same to all of our friends. Like, my, my best friend who grew up in the house behind me is the godfather of my kid. I've had, like, the same friends for all through high school and still to this day. When I was 13, maybe 14, my dad got diagnosed with a brain tumor, soft cell sarcoma, which was a result of him fighting in uh, Vietnam. He had become a self-made millionaire. He grew up very poor, didn't have a dad, uh, worked very hard, you know, and he did fight in Vietnam. and when he put in the claim, his insurance called it a pre-existing condition and the VA called it, said it wasn't their fault, soft-cell sarcomas aren't a part of it. Um, Since then, they have retracted that, but still given my family nothing, even though we lost everything, because my dad began to pay out of pocket for the insurance. Right. He moved to Boston briefly, and then U of M, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is about 45 minutes to an hour or so from where I grew up. And uh, they lived there so he could get different neurosurgeries done. He had a halo drilled into his head and I started working, let's see, I started working when I was like 13 at my dad's baseball fields, but probably like 14 I started working right when my dad was getting sick. And I started working at a pharmacy, which there I could steal like Valium and Vicodin and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it was a different time mid 90s before you know oxycodone you know you're in right yeah flooded the world and you just get a girl with a briefcase selling you painkillers and buying you free dinners to hook the whole country right and uh, so yeah it was at a time where I could just throw some in my cellophane that that was taking the pain away but that alcohol uh, alcoholism hit me quick I mean I was uh really numbing the pain with booze and i ended up being arrested 12 times before i was 21. 13 altogether but 12 times when i was 21 all for alcohol and drug related offenses i was lucky that i lived in detroit because they really wouldn't put a white kid into wayne county jail they would only put me inside of the rehab system uh mental institution or um juvie they wouldn't actually put me in a real prison which was a good thing for me it allowed me to get away with a lot of stuff i mean i don't know if it's good in hindsight but i guess that's the benefit of at the time being raised in one of the most dangerous places you can after that my aunt stayed not my aunt but like a family friend stayed with us and she was an er surgeon and she was staying with me And she actually uh, committed suicide by taking a bunch of pills because it turned out she had been stealing them from the ER. Mm. And then she drank a bunch and uh, had committed suicide with those. And then after that, I moved in with my aunt for a while. Now that was your mom. That was my mom's uh, friend. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was like our babysitter since the time we were real young. But my mom knew her from St. John's Hospital because they both worked there. And you wouldn't have known in a million years. There was this very weird time. One time she picked me up at a restaurant where I was a Mm busboy, and I said I had smoked pot, and she went off on me. And I couldn't believe it because she let us, like, smoke cigarettes in the house Mm -hmm. and occasionally drink, so I couldn't understand why. And then I realized it was, you know, she was a drug addict and didn't want me to go down that same slope. Right. So after that, my dad died when we were 18, which was very, very hard. You know, he had been out of commission for about four years prior to that. And then the VA still said, you know, we're not responsible, especially now that you're 18, we don't have to pay you. Um, The insurance company, obviously, you can't do much about it. It was ruled as a pre-existing condition. You know, years later, my mom took her own life because she really couldn't live without my dad. She, even her suicide note, which she took pills to do, she wrote, I'm going to go see your dad, you know, love mom. She slowly degenerated over time. I mean, they were together since they were 14, minus a couple weeks. Over time, yeah, she just sort of would slowly lose it, you know, and slowly get more and more bipolar. And it got to the point where the ups were insanely up, like throwing $10,000 birthday parties and the downs were locking herself inside for a week at a time. And it, it just became so overwhelmingly obvious that when she did commit suicide, it wasn't that surprising it was sad and i knew why she did it but i could sympathize with it and she was also when she was young she was a candy striper and this was uh, she, when she was 13 she worked inside of a mental uh, health care clinic and this is 1960 mm-hmm. so you can imagine the horror she saw of mental health in 1960 with you know electroshock calling people retard treating anybody with depression like so she, because of what she experienced as a kid, would never admit to having a mental illness. She was too afraid of it. Right. So no matter how many times we try to talk to her or sit her down or do anything, she could go to a, a psychiatrist and get whatever drug she wanted because she had a PhD. She chose to be a nurse. She knew everything about medicine and she knew how to manipulate the system. Mm. So she got everything she wanted anytime and she was able to do that for you know, a long time, she was in the system. She never stole medicine or anything, but somehow she managed to get a great deal of Vicodin off of a psychiatrist, so it's, uh...
0: That's odd that you would get
1: Vicodin isn't from it? a psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, we looked into that, too, so... It was uh, an interesting ending, you know, and after that, going through everything, and at that time, I was sober, though, and I did not relapse, which was... uh a benefit absolutely you know but yeah i always took comfort in drugs and alcohol and uh, finally yeah it was my 13th arrest as an adult where i was locked in in a jail and there was a guy who had beaten his wife and he was much bigger than me and he was crying all night and I just kept telling him to shut the fuck up. Or mm-hmm. I beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. And I'm very small and drunk and I could not have. Mm-hmm. But because of it, they ended up putting me in solitary and they took my shoelaces and my belt. And then I looked at my mugshot and you know, I looked like a, like a pudgy Pablo. I looked like a pudgy, uh, not Pablo Escobar, but the other guy who was arrested uh, not too long ago who did the interview with Sean Penn. El yeah. Chapo. El I Chapo. got it. El Chapo. Yes. Yes. I look like El Chapo for some reason. When I I drank, I went from being an Irish Italian to a uh, Mexican coke uh, drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> and just looking at me, though, I was a different person. I had like mutated into this this version of myself. And I remember I had a, like a mustache and a like soul patch because I was tired mm-hmm. of looking at my face. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was the moment where I sort of had the come to God moment. And I had a lot before, mm-hmm. but they never stuck. Right, You know, and I ended up with a breathalyzer in my car, walking around with a tether. And I was married at the time, which was, I still am, but at the time it was, I didn't realize I wasn't 17. I was now 27. And my alcoholism that I thought I had taken care of had just crept right back into my life. So that was, uh, yeah, that was number 13, where I thought, maybe it's me. Mm-hmm.
0: It's kind of like, you know, uh, you said, maybe it's me. I routinely uh, do counseling for people who are getting divorced. And when it's a man or a woman who this is their third or fourth marriage, (laughs) it's probably not the spouse. It may be,
1: you. It could be Maybe. You looking inward. Yeah. Just saying. Maybe just yeah. a little
0: bit. So we've got a <laughs> we've got a long, long rundown here. And so I, I wanna kinda back up and unpack yeah, sure. uh, some of this real fast. I
1: realize it's a lot to cram into ten uh, minutes of absolutely. explaining my life.
0: Yeah. Uh so you you uh mentioned, of course, that your mom was bipolar and so she kinda had for lack of a better word, two personalities. In that she was either kind and loving, or, as you put it, insane. Yes. Uh, in 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 the psych world, we don't like to use that word. I'm sure. Uh,
1: it, it, in the comic world, we we'll, absolutely we'll use whatever, what <laughs> whatever word
0: gets the bigger laugh. Yes. Yeah. So, you you mentioned that it it progressed over time. Now. Would you say that it actually progressed over time or you became more aware of it over time?
1: No, I would say it progressed. I, I definitely was more aware of it over time um, because I when you're young, you just assume mom's in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. I mean, bad mood, you know, and there was always a certain air in the house where it was very dark and terrifying. You just knew it walking in. hmm. And when she was in a bad mood, it was not like other parents. It was a different level that I realized by going to friends' houses and everything like, oh, she doesn't act rational. But she was was a good person. And for the most part, she had mostly up days. So it was like once every couple weeks, there'd be a day. But then it became as she was older to half and half, you know, and to the point where then that bad mood took completely over and that down mood and that anger and that. So I'd say, yeah, it was a bit a bit of both. But I definitely would say that I watched her illness progress over 30 years from the uh, well, not 30. She died when I was 33. 33. Yeah, it was probably over 25 years that I had noticed, and I could tell the difference. Okay.
0: Did you know or or recognize that your brother or your father could see the same things? Because sometimes it's in a family, we kind of pick up on certain things where other people may not have the same perspective as to, to what may be going on.
1: Uh, my dad never saw certain sides of her. I think I mean it was it's it's hard to explain where she had a comfort around him and he did of course see her bad moods but we'd leave the house but he knew she was abused when she was younger and had a certain amount of sympathy and empathy for what she had went through so I think he had justified it because he was always protecting her, her whole life and then yeah my brother and i knew we're like oh she's such a bitch," you know like when we were by the time we were old enough to defend ourselves we sort of rebelled you know but yeah i would say definitely people noticed and as i've heard over time a lot of people noticed Mm -hmm. to the point where they'd talk to my dad and my dad would be like well it's my wife you know and sort of some level of denial right Especially when he got sick, though, she took care of him and very became very passionate about that. And so they and they were kind of out of the picture for a while, and they didn't want to be, but, you know, they had no choice.
0: Right. So, once again, there was uh, issues of loving and kindness and then issues of, uh, once again, with your word, insane. Yes. Can you kind of explain to me in, in some kind of either – an instance, or your definition of what insane looked like?
1: The first time I noticed it, I just asked uh, what we were having for dinner and I was five, and she said dog shit and was real pissed off, like that I'd even (laughs) asked. And I was like, okay, well, that doesn't sound too good. (laughs) Right. And that was one of the first times I noticed. Uh But she was more i mean physically abusive and verbally abusive but it yeah that was when you would notice like oh she she would have a belt out and you know just beat the shit out of us so it's like that's when you would kind of go okay well she's crossed over into this <laughs> other zone and you well i guess you know a lot of my friends this is the 80s a lot of my friends got hit it was either with hands, spoons, belts, whatever. I don't think I... I think whatever I, was the closest. Whatever was the I remember I was watching Full House one time, and uh, a kid said that his, to Michelle that his uh, dad had hit him, or his mom had hit him, and then the police came and were, like, taking him to a better home, and I'm just looking at my mom like, Can you do this? <laughs> like, are you... <laughs> is this... <laughs> it was one hit? <laughs> right, right. And, uh... Yeah, it was, she would, I just grew up as if it was normal, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, when I met my friend, we'll call him T-Bone, he was like, oh no, my parents have never hit me. Mm-hmm. And this is. I met him when I was like 12, yeah. and my dad wasn't a much, my dad was not violent, but uh, my mom was, and that was like the first time I realized, like, oh, there's other households where this kind of stuff doesn't occur, you know, right. but yeah, I grew up with it, it normal. Right. So
0: talking about uh, Full House there, I remember a time growing up where <laughs> I was, uh, I wouldn't use the word physically abused, but very well strictly disciplined. Yes. yes. And living in the South, we all know what that means. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so I, I made the comment. I said, well, if you hit me again, I'm going to call the police. And I remember distinctly at eight or nine years old, being hit again, and then given the phone and said, call them. (laughs) But when I get out of jail, you're going to have to call them again because I'm going to do it again for you calling them. And I was like, yeah, so maybe we shouldn't call. So, you know, but once again, uh, growing up in a household, even having friends, that wasn't something we talked about. Right. So we just assumed that that was normal. Right, uh, for for lack of a better word, normal uh kind of behavior and in the 80s early 90s it was we still had corporal punishment in school. Mm-hmm. You know, so so we didn't uh in in our world growing up. I imagine we're about the same age. Uh Yeah, I'm that, 38. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh yeah, we're we're this I'm a little younger than you, probably yeah. a couple of months, but yeah. but I'll say I'm I'm younger than you are. Yeah. Uh but but that was kind of
1: well it was the social norm. Mm-hmm. that that was how you were disciplined uh yeah and... it was not uncommon and it's like you said too the social services thing you know my friend mike does a joke about that where it's like mm-hmm. call them they don't want you either right and you my you know they kind of do that like joe passion casino thing where it's like that's fine but by the time you get out of your coma i'm gonna be getting out of jail i'm gonna right. do it again and that was always the element and when you saw your friends get hit or slapped or whatever it wasn't weird mm-hmm it was, like you said, it was just the 80s right. and early 90s, and it was very common. Right. I, I even
0: remember uh, being uh, at a babysitter with this uh, older couple who they had four or five daughters, and we all, you know, it was uh, like during the summer, and we all stayed there. And in one sense, I was, well, this isn't fair, because if one of you got in trouble, you all got spanked. Like, yes. It was, it, and— and even today, looking back, I'm going, well, that that wasn't fair, <laughs> but it was effective. Yes. It worked, you know, and, and or growing up and nobody would admit to what they did or they wouldn't rat each other out. So you all got, you know, disciplined for it. And, and it was a different world. I mean, it, it was just a different world. And, and some of the younger people uh, can't even fathom. What that was
1: like. No, and, you know, my son won't have to. Mm -hmm. But that's because of where I came from. But then I look at my parents and I go, well, they were still... 75% less than their parents in their world where they were getting beaten in school, you know. So will we get to a point where the kids beat the parents for discipline? That's what's going to
0: happen. You know, because my parents always said, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Yes. (laughs) And I thought, well, that doesn't make sense because I'm the one that needs the discipline. So (laughs) let me hurt you
1: instead of you hurting me. Yeah, there's always that until you have kids and you have to discipline them (laughs) where, I mean, mine was like timeouts for Mm -hmm. my son. You know, he's only five, so it's it's like I don't yell, I don't. It's just not to me. It's not effective, right? And he's a much better kid, it seems, for it because he's not terrified of me, but he's also respectful, right? You know, so right. it's yeah. So in the mid '90s, a uh, child psychologist, Dr.
0: Spock, he said that if you if you spank your child, you warp their personality. Yes. Well, mine was warped all over the house.
1: Yeah, I was never. I was never spanked. Mm-hmm. That was the odd thing. like I was never like hit on the butt with the belt. I was hit like almost everywhere else. Right, and it was uh, yeah, it sucked. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll just take, I'll just take like, I'd rather have a spanking, but I imagine that that's you know that leads again to a slippery slope of dominatrix and paying someone to pee on you. So I can't imagine. We can't even get into that kind of, that's
0: a, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast for a whole yes, different day. I can't imagine. Uh, and maybe probably somebody else's podcast. Cause I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, want to, yeah. we'll, well, we'll, you know, we'll let somebody else uh, talk about <laughs> those things. So tell me about now you were, you're 13 years old now. You're living in this, um, I'm going to say dysfunction. Uh, of a house, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, your dad is diagnosed with
1: a brain tumor. I was, at the time, about a year and a half into... Pretty severe depression, but I didn't know what it was. Right. But I did know that it was a good time that grunge music had come out because it accompanied that feeling. Right. So I was writing a lot of songs and stuff down and anger. And, um, yeah, when I turned 13, I don't know if I really grasped it. I just knew my parents were around and I was like a weird 13 12 year old. I mean, I was into like David Lynch and punk and like grunge and I uh That's weird. Yeah, I was into like <laughs> Tarantino, the independent film scene. Um Clerks had just come out when I was 13, so I was buying cameras or like looking them. You know, I was very much into like the art community and uh very much using this depression as a shield. I felt good in it. Um, I felt good because I was protected. If I if I didn't have to be happy, I didn't have to worry about becoming sad. I could just stay there. Right. I still fight with that. Right. It's very It's a very good place to be because if you can't go down unless you force yourself, it feels pretty good.? Right. You don't have to worry about that. So when I was 13, it affected me, but it affected me in the way where, I was a pretty sweet kid, I was really nice and I was shy and my brother was very popular and at the time I was not. And I would have done anything to be popular. So that's when I started really misbehaving in school and there's like the class clown and then there's the kid who causes real problems and that was me, like lighting off fireworks in class. One time I hit a teacher on the s with a ruler and I got suspended from our Washington DC field trip. I ended up going to high school for five years. And that's when I started. So you crammed four years of school into five. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just did what I could. Six, if you count summer school (laughs) and night school. It's quite a, it's quite a student. You'd see all F's and then TV production would be an A. So there was a little potential on that report card. But that's when I started to really rebel. And that's when I started doing drugs. I started experimenting with weed. And then when I was 14, it went right into LSD, which I ended up doing almost every other day for the next couple years, and then there was that, and then of course mushrooms. The ecstasy boom eventually came. Snorting special K, cocaine, and then I was a, I had, would have to drink in the morning to stop from shaking. By the time I was sixteen, so starting at thirteen, what I knew at the time was I was sad, and I knew that I. I always had two speeds in my life where it was either up or down. So I just kept myself kind of in the down place, made friends that way by just not really caring about myself, my own safety or anything, willing to do anything for a laugh or do anything to get the attention of, you know, girls, whatever it was. But yeah, when I was 13, I I think it just, it justified my sadness and my anger and my disappointment at the world. Mm
0: so did you ever at any point in that 13 14 year old have the fear or even conviction that you may be doing exactly what your mother's doing
1: no not at that age okay and i it's hard because i don't i worry about that i, I worry about the genetics of it mm-hmm. but i don't see it as the same for some reason i could be wrong but no i i didn't connected then i've connected it a bit now okay but at the time it was just coping
0: right because you know sometimes uh in in adolescence when we see the mental health condition within our family we kind of get afraid that we're going down that same path which then leads to even more depression and and at that point in time coping the only way that that you would know how which would you know, be alcohol or drugs or being promiscuous, any of those type of things. And,
1: yeah, and the, it was all three.
0: Yeah. And so the problem is, though, kind of it is looked at, you know, 13 to 17, 18, even into early 20s, that isn't that kind of normal behavior for, you know, someone maybe not average or normal, but it's not unexpected you know, that 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 would be. Now, LSD, ecstasy, you know, that that kind of moves into. But I assume that you didn't one day open a beer and then do ecstasy and LSD all in the same day. It was a progression.
1: No, it was a progression. I mean, I I jumped pretty much off the high dive into drugs. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about it. But it wasn't that I wasn't it wasn't an antisocial behavior. It was very social. Right. And at the time, mind you, this is before smartphones. This is before all that stuff. We didn't have that technology. We had pagers, and it was everything we did was as a group. If I'm snorting Valium, as weird as that sounds, I'm with three people. Right. And for our listeners, I would
0: not recommend snorting Valium. No, it's really not yeah. the best way to do no, it. It makes your nose burn a little bit. And...
1: It does. It makes you a little tired. Yeah. It it really and leaves a funny
0: taste in your mouth. <laughs> it too. Does. Yeah,
1: yeah. You get the throat driplets, yeah. uh, in the back, and yeah. it's just uh, maybe like pixie sticks. You could snort those. You could do those. Yeah. I I still do. Yeah, it gives me it, the sugar I need in the right. morning, and it gives me the. It's sort of like uh, cocaine Odules, right? Gives right. you
0: a little kick, right? <laughs> I heard a very bad comedian one time say. I tried snorting coke, but the ice kept getting in the way. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, (laughs) good for him. What was your diagnosis there? Didn't get beat enough? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Uh, No, actually, it was one of those things where uh, mama told him he was funny, and so he— you know, was oh. was the mother comedian. You oh, know? welcome to the New York comedy
1: scene. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And let me tell you, it's not exclusive to New York. Oh, no. it's uh, There's a lot of people where it's like, you know, you have to be funny to do this. Right. A-
0: right. Yeah, I I have a friend. Well, I shouldn't say a friend. We went to high school together. And uh, he is trying to get into the stand-up kind of thing. So he goes to these open mic nights like in, in Fort Smith. and Okay. And you know, he will have somebody record him and then upload it to YouTube. And I'm going, why would you upload that to YouTube? Because literally nobody is laughing at anything that
1: you were saying. Putting your open mic set on YouTube is just the kiss of death. And I've told people who have done that where I've looked at it, it's like, you're terrible and you're just starting and you want everyone to witness this? Right. <laughs> like, wait till you get a TV credit, put that on YouTube. Absolutely. Wait until you do something. Right. The best case scenario is a radio show finds that and plays it and rips you apart. Like, there's no benefit. And then you're
0: hired because people think you're funny, but not in the way you want to be funny. No,
1: you're just terrible. Right. So they're laughing at you, not with you. Right. Which is a lot of people where you're just like, why are you? There's also the, you know, the guy who is completely right about everything or whatever and wants to push his ideology on the entire audience. So he doesn't say anything funny. Right. He just lectures. And it's like, as a comedian, you should not have that point of view. Like you should have a terrible point of view, and then vo- make that vulnerable and share that with the audience. Absolutely, you're you're a flawed person. Right. You're not somebody that should be celebrated, or no one should listen to my advice from the stage because none of it is real. Right. It's all an exaggerated version of what you could really do within real life, or I'll tell true stories about my life that I wouldn't recommend doing either. Right, you know,
0: it's kind of like you know, uh, myself as a public speaker, sometimes I say just because I have a microphone and maybe an 800 number doesn't mean that you should trust everything that comes out of my <laughs> right, mouth. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. We're all human.
1: Right. You know, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. We we all make mistakes. Uh,
1: never wrong, but we make mistakes. No, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I learn from my mistakes, hence I'm never wrong.
0: Right. Right. <laughs> so, so moving into uh, this family friend that, that committed suicide, have you ever, and I'm, and I'm not, uh, implying that this is what happened, but have you ever thought about that it was easier for your mother to commit suicide knowing that she had a close personal connection that had had
1: done that? Um, yes, the fact that she had done the exact same thing. Uh, I think that she had thought about it for a long time. And uh, yeah, I thought it was for the best. I mean, that's so hard to say now but once you go through it she wouldn't get the help that she needed and her life was just pain and she was like there was she was a good person so you knew the part of her that was good and eventually I learned the part of her that was abused and I took even shit into adulthood but it's it's so hard to put into so many words but yeah after a while you look at you just look at her and go well I guess this was for the best which is a very difficult rationale, but I still see it that way.
0: Right. Well, it, it's in a lot of ways, you know, being arrested, we don't always see it to be, well, we don't see it to be convenient unless, you know, I know that in when it gets really hot outside or really cold that homeless people will do things to get arrested so they have a place to stay yeah, for the night. Yeah, get some food, yeah. Uh, you know, three hots and a cot. Exactly. And, uh, but when we have these inconveniences of life uh, sometimes if we can say, well, you know, this, this may really be for the best. It gives us this sense of security and hope that maybe this is what it's going to take
1: for things to get better. Absolutely. Yeah. With, and even with my, like my arrests personally, it didn't it took till i was 27 the first 12 didn't mean anything in fact i was hanging out in the ghetto so much that i almost used it as street cred more than anything else because i was going to drug houses and raves in the hood and all kinds of stuff and you know crashing cars so it didn't it didn't really affect me uh, in the way that it should have it just sort of it gave me more reason to be hopeless and that could allow me to keep drinking. I needed the excuse. I needed the reasons to keep hurting myself. And that's, it was a benefit for me at the time. So your dad died when you were 18. Yes. com for all your comedy needs. <laughs> yeah, he died when I was 18. Uh, uh, yeah, after fighting it for four ish years, yeah. So
0: how do you how do you think that affected you? you know because a lot of times when we see family members suffer, it's easier to let them go and we don't feel while we feel lost it's it's more comfort and knowing that they're not in pain anymore and that they're they're not suffering. Uh, how did that kind of
1: work in in what you were dealing with there? I did have the wherewithal to realize that okay, this is probably better than him being in pain. Cause I remember the first time I saw the halo drilled into his head, I was tripping on acid and I walked in and my dad's just sitting there with a halo nailed into his head. And that is, uh, that is terrifying. But when you're on three hits of acid, it is, it is extra. And my dad knew too, because he was in Vietnam, he knew what it looked like if somebody was on hallucinogens Mm -hmm. and, uh, I watched him suffer, but at the same time, he was very tough, and he never let it affect him. He was like Dangerfield. He's always making jokes. Like, he never... I never connected how bad it was because they wouldn't let me see how bad it had got. And the only reason why I knew he was going to die the night he did is because my grandma called and said, you should come up with your friends and come talk to your dad and say, like, goodbye. And when I got there... He still didn't seem in a place where you would just make that judgment call, but he did die shortly after. And it was, he was just very, very tough and did not show that level of emotion or level of, I shouldn't say emotion, because it almost sounds like, because he was, he did have emotions. He was very happy and he wasn't a person that really let life hurt him. He was very tough and it was, it didn't seem that, or at least I, or I was in complete denial. And I remember it differently. Right. So now moving
0: into your adult life, the last arrest, you said you were 27. 27. Yeah. So within that time of graduating high school and 27, what was life like then?
1: Uh, pretty good. I mean, I got out of high school, and I immediately joined Second City in Detroit and started taking classes. And I told my dad that's what I wanted to do, and he was really happy because he knew how much I loved it. Uh, he used to wake me up to watch SNL when I was a kid. You know, my brother would still be asleep, and I'd be downstairs watching Dana Carvey and Mike Myers and Farley. and Back when it was really good. Yes, back when it was really good. Dennis Miller up to Norm. Really good years. And, uh, yeah, those were... Yeah, those were good days so is is that kind of where you drew off of wanting to be a comedian oh absolutely I never knew I want to get into stand-up because between those years I really just wanted to get into sketch but my friends kept saying I really like your writing you should try stand-up all right so I went and I tried stand-up comedy and I loved it immediately you know I was I was a fan of stand-up but not the way that I was with sketch and acting and film but it turned out I had kind of a knack for it so i fell into it and eventually i was making a living and i just kept going down that path and i got a bit further away from acting and sketch and um You know part of me regrets it but the other part of me loved what i was doing and now i'm able to tell my story you know i get a lot of fulfillment about doing rehab shows and and telling my story and when i connect with somebody who's like oh no i was in a mental hospital my roommate was a vampire not a werewolf and you know it's like the way you can connect with somebody on such a personal level by just telling your story is something that I really don't think comes across in any way except for stand-up or, like you say, public speaking or whatever it is as far as entertainment goes. There's a certain one-on-oneness of that that can be lost when even telling a story on film. So I, I really do love the way that I'm able to talk about what I've been through.
0: Was it one of your bits where you weren't taken to jail one time and you were taken to a mental hospital? I was
1: taken to a mental hospital, but I don't... The only part of that that isn't what happened was the police walking in. What happened was I went home and my dad was there and I tried to fight him. And I shoved him and my dad's head hit uh, the microwave and there was a crack in it and that was from his halo. And my dad also knew judo and was a soldier. So after I did that, he flipped me around and like got me to the point where like I was just like over the stove, not moving. And that's when my mom called the police and had me sent to a mental hospital. While well, I was in the mental hospital for two weeks. One, I was attacked by a werewolf kid who uh, <laughs> took his clothes off at night and tried to attack me. Right. I w- and I tried to fight him off, but I grabbed a lamp and it was glued down. Because apparently you don't want those available in mental hospitals. Uh-huh. So yeah, I had to wrestle him off me and they tranked him with booty juice. Uh-huh. And then after that, uh, they they said I, I, I shouldn't be there. Uh-huh. They said you should be in a rehab facility. And after that, I went to my first rehab, which was Brighton in Michigan. And I, sadly, I don't think they have it for youths anymore, but it was 18 and under uh, rehab. And that was my first time I did 30 days in a, in a rehab facility, which is with all these kids who were like, I think the youngest kid was 13. The oldest one was 17. And you would just see these people just having heroin withdrawal and alcohol. I was one of them having alcohol withdrawal and having to take medication to not die. And then in the mental hospital, I was put on antipsychotics at first because I was violent. So I was just sort of, I was the most even I'd ever been. I didn't have thoughts, good or bad. I was just a zombie, just vacant. And... Uh, they took me off that, thank God, and I was like, "Oh right, feelings again," but I didn't like those either. Right, so. and
0: you know, a lot of people say, I, "I don't want to go to a mental hospital or I don't want to go to a psychiatrist because they're just going to put me on medicine that make me feel like a zombie." Yes, which has to happen for you to suppress that emotion, so that we can work on those emotions, right. and you know that that's kind of what happens that's that's the whole purpose right. of, of doing that uh, but you know there is a reason that it's called practicing medicine right you know it's it's not uh, it is a science but it's not a science we're all different we metabolize things differently so what happened what was the turning point that really pushed you to that first open mic night uh, I would assume it was your first appearance was at an open mic
1: oh uh well it was being in second city and i was reading a sketch i had written and it was um just after 9 11 and it was like a country song about how because you know how like all those country singers would be like this song's about 9 11 me profiting off 9 11. you know it's just and uh I, I really like outlaw country and stuff, even though I'm from the north, from Detroit. But I lo- and I currently I love like Jason Isbell, Sergio Simpson, like just great artists, you know. But at the time, I was—I really hated pop country. I still do. So it was based off of that, and my friend just was because saying, it's really
0: not country music. No, it's garbage.
1: <laughs> it's pop-produced nonsense from, like, Nashville is two cities. One is a very pop, terrible place, and the other one is where like all the great music, right, has been through. You know, right. it, and uh, yeah, there's the Opry, and then there's just whatever TNN. And uh, at the time, um, all my we were writing these sketches, and we brought the sketches to a show called uh, The DeVito Code, I think, and then we did another one called Meet in the Middle, M-E-A-T, which I wrote, and it was a, that was just a pun for anal sex, but I did it because it was the gays and the straights couldn't uh, live together, so they made their own towns. So like the the gay guy lost his florist shop because there were no like angry or there were no straight guys to buy flowers for their wives. And then like uh, one of the straight guys lost his Subaru dealership because there were no lesbians to buy his cars. And then they meet in the middle at the end. So it was this, but it was like filtered with sketches because, you know, you're very highly political. And Second City is what SNL was based on. So when you write a sketch... You want it to be making fun of whatever's in power. And at that time, it was like the George Bush and the right, you know. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, you know, political power
0: and comedy, there's not been a lack of material in the last three and a half years.
1: No, I I do Fox and I do the Anthony Cumia show, which is known for being right. And um I'm sort of a moderate, which people can say is a cop-out, but if you listen to my life, every institution that I've looked at has failed me in one way or another, so I do not buy into any of it. So all I see now is two sides of chaos, and I guess my humor just fits slightly more right because I'm still of the mindset that comedy is comedy and should be taken as simply a joke and should not be... The way that it is now, where you have to be careful of if I have to be careful of what I say, why am I doing satire? And now it's like you said, the the line has been blurred between reality and parody to the point where every headline just looks like the onion, where it's like multiracial white supremacist group and you're like did i just read that right (laughs) like it just looks like a national lampoon uh thing from the 70s it's just absurd i just can't imagine the narcissism level to want to be the leader of the free world but now to watch it to see how far it can go you're like all right well and i don't again if anybody's listening again i don't dislike certain things. And I and I, I like both sides and I dislike both sides. I think that's the problem is we find no middle ground. Absolutely. And we can't settle anything. And that's the biggest problem in our country is we're all fighting for a team. And that's just so stupid to me. Mm-hmm. But
0: I think at the end of the
1: day, we're all fighting for the same thing. We just have different ideas of how to accomplish it. You're 100% right. That's how I see it. I think people do want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They just don't understand. Because of the way our world is technology-wise, I think that we just don't understand what it's like to not have this constant judgment and the idea of millions of people. Like you said, your friend putting it on YouTube. It's like, can you comprehend it? millions of people being able to see this? It's, it. you can't. Right. We gave every American a television station, and now we're just watching everybody battle each other over others' rights, and we're not, again, looking inward, in my opinion, and saying, okay, what do I do wrong? What can I change? What, what do I like? Instead, it's... I like this team and let's burn down a city or, you know, whatever it is. Right. You're either an Antifa or you're, uh, what is it, a white nationalist. There's no middle ground. You're either KKK or burning down buildings. Right. And, you know, I,
0: talking about putting things on YouTube, I, I have a TikTok channel. And I remember the first time that one of my videos got like 1,000 views. And I was yeah. like, wow. And then I had a video pop off that has now – like 1.7 million views yeah. and and was translated into Arabic and put on the Arabic uh, version of YouTube. And then I start getting all of these emails in Arabic about, you know, and then having to Google translate sure. to hear their discord and distaste with everything that I just said in 60 seconds, right. you know, and I'm going, I don't even know You know, 5,000 people, but to think that 1.6,
1: 1.7 million people have heard my opinion is scary. That's how I said because I have one I think I have one point close to one point seven on my werewolf story on This Is Not mm-hmm. Happening. Right. Which Comedy Central put on there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's But, 1. but Half of those is from me because I well, fell asleep yeah, when and, and at least a third's from me, refreshing. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. It but I look at that, it's like that many people have seen it. And then people will show up to my show and I think like, oh, you must know my radio show. But they don't. They're like, no, I saw your this is not happening, and I was in a mental whatever connection. But yeah, I look at that and and then you can read through, and I, I stopped reading comments a while ago. The only time I see it every now and then is, well, daily when somebody tweets me hate. <laughs> but usually I just mute them, and then it's just fun. Because whatever I've learned over time, whatever it is, they're just projecting it onto you. Because it's almost, you read it, and you're like, this seems very specific for me. You know, like you closet homosexual, whose dad was a numb and who you know, and you look at it, and it's like this sounds like you. Like mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe we related, but they, the amount of just gay verbiage and racist shit that can get thrown at you in a day is pretty astonishing. Absolutely. But I, I look at that too on my video where my favorite is like lies, and it's like, what, why? Just because it's not an interesting story to you, or or I think it's an interesting story, the the crowd does, but just because it's not something that you think is possible, it took me a long time before I could walk on stage and do that. I mean, I was very much into one-liners and stuff, and once I, my friends were like, you have to get more of your story out there. It was hard. Like, I have to make this funny. I have to talk about, and, you know, I may, I've been able to do that, but it took a long time to hit a comfort zone where I was okay with letting the crowd really know what a piece of shit I had been at points in my life. So do you think though, that the crowd
0: for the most part knows that most of the story is
1: true? Um, people will ask after, most will realize it's true because there's just a way I'm telling it mm-hmm. because when, even in a club, I'm going to start with jokes and it's going to be obviously more one-linery and just hitting them to make them realize that I know what I'm doing. And then I move into stories and drug abuse and alcoholism because you also want them ordering beers and I don't want to open with that. Right. The club's got to sell drinks. right? So... Uh, later on when I get into my stories though and, and everything like that, they're on board and they trust me and they know that I'm being completely authentic. And that's the moments that I wish I could do the whole hour of which I'm working on, but you need your audience for that. You can't just walk into a random club and just open with, you know. Right. So
0: tell me now in your adult career, that sounded bad, didn't it? In your adult career. Yes. That, that, uh, my kind child a, alludes to <laughs> yeah. a different kind of career. Yes, yeah. yeah, uh, but but now as an adult uh, in your career, what would you say that your highest point has been? And I'm not talking about drugs. I'm talking about your your best, the best performance, or the 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 one thing that you are the most proud of
1: in your career. At the moment, um, and it has been for a long time. It is. My this is not happening just because it took so much to get me there to be able to tell that story and to have that faith in myself. But I'd say that element is what it, what it is and being able to do a rehab show or do a, a um, you know, a 12 step benefit and have an entire room of people laughing because we're all hurt. You know, that's what I love about people who go to those shows because chances are, if you've, you know, pawned your grandmother's uh, silverware for heroin money, you're not going to judge me for saying stuff about my old life. You know, you're very open. Um, So there's that element. And then also being able to be on the Anthony Cumia show and keep up with one of my heroes. And that's an amazing thing. It's just New York is a. I've been here for three years and it's not. It's not really the most welcoming place. And it's not really the dream for me. And uh, I just finished my book and I just uh, I have Brad Garrett um, writing the foreword and helping get it out. And I'm really happy about that because it's stories of my entire life, like what I talked about and different things that had happened. And it took me forever to finally write a book that my friends had been asking me to do since I was like 17. And I finally put put it out there so the first book is just my youth that i'm very proud of even though it's not even out yet i'm just proud that i was able to get that out
0: and and you found that i'm sure liberating
1: very much so i try not to hang on to my past but it's very hard not to mm-hmm. but we have to
0: realize that
1: what we have done is not who we are right yeah and that's hard to sometimes separate it though absolutely absolutely Absolutely.
0: Well, uh, thank you for listening to Doc Talks today, um, Doc Brian. As we go into the diagnosis part of this, uh, you can find that episode on Patreon where we talk about the diagnosis that we actually think is going on with our guests and discuss that diagnosis and potential treatment of how they would put all of this together to help them cope with their. Mental illness. Dave, I appreciate you sharing your story with us today. Uh, our guests will join us on the second part of this podcast to discuss their diagnosis.
1: Dave, tell us where we can find you, real quick. Uh, DaveLando.com, at Landau Dave on Twitter. It's L A N D A U. Uh, Dave Landau on Facebook, Dave.Lando on Instagram. Uh, my OnlyFans. No, um, let's see. I, uh, <laughs> which I have one subscriber, which is my wife. Yes, that's it. Uh, my grinder account. I, uh, yeah, I think that's everything.
0: It's... All right. Well, thank you for being with us today. As I said, join us with the second part of this podcast on Patreon to discuss their diagnosis. Thank you, and thank you for listening.